Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to HIV Hope and Charity, a podcast series brought to you by TVPS, a charity that's been supporting people affected by HIV since 1985. I'm Sarah. And I'm Jess and we work for TVPS and our aim is to get as many people as possible HIV educated. If you like the podcast, please rate, subscribe and leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. So welcome Jess to HIV Hope and Charity. Hello. How are you, right? Yeah, I'm good. Good, thank you. How are you? I'm very good. I'm excited for this episode is what I am. Oh, good. I think you should be. So we have no guest this week in fact the next few podcasts we're not going to have guests but we are focusing on our HIV heroes yeah I love this concept it's such a good idea me too I think I do think it's a good idea and um there's lots of iconic people aren't there that kind of work in the HIV sector but they don't always get recognized I don't think it's a sector we're very good at kind of pushing ourselves forward or kind of um promoting ourselves sometimes absolutely and I think you know, as we know from watching It's a Sin, more and more people are open and interested and want to learn more about HIV. So let's look at people who are doing things in the world of HIV now and people have done it in the past. And let's share that. Let's educate people and ourselves, because I know that when we've been doing research for this, we both have been quite surprised and learned a lot, haven't we? Oh, definitely. I class myself as a historian (laughs) I'm going to call you. You're an HIV historian. I like that you're self-proclaimed. Yeah, I have no qualification. (laughs) Just decided. No no training. (laughs) No job title I've given myself. (laughs) Oh, amazing. Well, so you're going first. Well, you're doing this episode. So who are we focusing on this week? Okay, so my I've just realised this rhymes. This is not a good way to start. My first hero is Patient Zero. That, that does rhyme, but wow, what a choice. Now, look, I know that sounds like the start of a horrific limerick, but bear with me. And actually, when I have looked at the story of Patient Zero, there are two heroes that make up my story. So you are getting two for the price of one, because, um, well, I'm just over-delivering. Look at me selling myself, over-delivering on all fronts with this one. Mine will be so underwhelming compared to this. we well, not underwhelming, but I only have one. I, I'm not, I don't have multiple. I know, I'm, I'm greedy. Um, and Wikipedia, I should mention, has been my absolute friend doing this because I've sourced a lot of information from there to find out more about who Patient Zero was. So you've heard of Patient Zero. I have. Excellent. Um, but lots of people might not. So he was the man who was purported to be the person that brought HIV to America. Exactly. That was crazy action. That, that that's you know I don't really know the entire story I have to say so I'm very interested to hear all about it but even I'm like no it's not one person like come mm. on it was all landed on his shoulders um and he was basically accused of bringing a virus with no cure to an entire continent 
that's quite an accusation to kind of have laid at his door. So first of all, I mean, he does have a name. He's called Gaetan Dugas, which I may have mispronounced. I'm really sorry if I have. Um, and he was originally from Canada, worked as an air steward for Air Canada. He was born in 1953 and he died of AIDS in 1984. Now, that date is important because a lot of the controversy um, around him happened after his death. So he couldn't defend himself. That's so hard to not have a right to reply to not. But then also, did he not? Maybe was he not aware of everything that had happened? So is that in a way kind of nice that he wasn't around to hear that he was being villainized, let's say, or vilified in such a way? I think so. So, yes, he probably didn't know. But then you think, oh, his friends and family. I can't even imagine. Yeah. For someone you love, Mm. it's been spoken about. And actually to this day that we still call patient zero. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So let's go back. Let's go back to the 80s, because that's when the AIDS epidemic started, as we know. And much like COVID, initially, nobody, not even the scientists, knew what caused it. So in the same year as Dugas died, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or the CDC in America, they published a paper in the American Journal of Medicine. And it was called The Cluster of Cases of the Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome. But for sure, they called it the 1984 cluster study. And the study looked at the sexual contact of gay men with AIDS to see if they contracted it through um, an infectious agent. Now, I know that sounds absolutely bonkers to us now, but back then, nobody knew how HIV was transmitted. Right. Yeah, that's it, isn't it? Yeah, of course, you're, you're looking at all sides of it. And how ironic that actually we're talking about this in times of COVID. Yeah, well, yes, Not- similarities, aren't yeah. they? Absolutely. Um, now, what the study did, they tracked the sexual activity of 40 AIDS cases in the United States, and they focused on men originating or living in California or New York. And that's because both areas had quite a high prevalence of gay men. Now, Dugas was one of the men that took part in the study, and the study looked at blood samples from these men, as well as their sexual history. So they looked at samples that had been collected from diagnosis onwards so the report was published during the year that he passed away but the samples and information he gave them were obviously collected prior to that because that was my first thought was that they collect samples from people after they've passed away but no and then of course you'd have time to compile the report now the report as you would expect they didn't put patients names in the report because of confidentiality so they used codes to reference each participant. So, for example, um, LA3 or NY15. So quite easy to identify the area, you know, Los Angeles or New York, but um, you can't identify the person because they're just a number. Now, the code that was used for Dugas was O57, and the O stood for out of California, or some people say out of area. I think it depends what your source of reference is. Now, at some point... During the production of the study, the O was changed to a zero. Now, here's why that might have happened, because I know that sounds mad in itself. Why would someone mess around with a report? 
But there's a paragraph in the report that mentions um, a hypothesis of HIV being an infectious agent. And it gives an example. So it says if patient zero is the carrier and has sex with eight others, there'll be possible source of AIDS infection in three of them. So they're basically they're trying to evidence how infectious HIV is or right. what time. Yeah. Now it's possible that someone thought this referred to Duga O57 and changed the O to a zero. It'd <gasps> been a typo. So they thought the patient zero is the carrier. They thought that was Duga and he should be 057. Oh, wow. That example that was given in the report is generic. Um, it's not based on specific people. It was purely there to evidence what might happen if someone contracts and passes on HIV. So it's kind of quite critical to the report that whoever was proofreading it or whoever was putting it together more than likely changed him to 057. And that's how he appeared in the report. So that's why he's patient zero for no other reason than a typo. Or, you know, not a typo, whether someone changed it purposefully or not, but that's why. Yeah, so that's how he got that label. Wow. Landed at his doorstep was simply his reference code being changed from an O to a zero. Might you blow my mind a little bit? Oh, have I? Oh, I like it when I do that. Yeah, because we still, like we're saying, we still call, we still, patient zero is still referenced to this day. And that's sort of, um, it's a mistake because... They're talking about the, oh, like you're saying, it's for out of area or, you know. Hmm. So if he was from New York or, I don't know, Los Angeles, like you were saying, he may never have been in this position. Yeah, he would never have been. He'd have been LA 57 or NY 57. That's crazy. I can't believe I I have no idea about this before, before now. I know. So do you want to know how it came into the public domain? Yes. Because they need a report. So how has it then gone from oh, that? Oh, that's true. How's it spread? How, do, how are we talking about this right now? Okay. Well, the, the study was published. So people would have access to it. And we know that his code had been changed. There was the generic example of patient zero. And there was somebody who read the report who was very intrigued by this. And he was um, a journalist and author. And he was called Randy Schultz. Now, what further intrigued him was a diagram in the report that I think it's called a spider diagram. You might know more than me, but it's the sort of diagram that you'd normally use in brainstorming. You know, when you put your subject in the middle and then all your ideas. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I'm gesticulating wildly. That (laughs) no other benefit than you (laughs) about what I'm trying to describe. But in this diagram, they... um, we're using it to depict the 40 men by code. Just so happened that 057, as he was by then, was in the middle of the diagram. So it did look like he was the epicenter or the starting point and all the other codes kind of radiated off him. And that really intrigued Randy Shields because by then he's like, okay, this patient zero obviously is key to the spread of HIV. Now, the CDC who produced the report, they were criticised for that diagram because it's misleading. It could have been anybody in the centre, but by coincidence, it was 057. But no further action was taken. And I can understand why, actually, because the work that they were doing at the time around HIV was of such huge importance that nobody wanted to upset them. 
although they were criticised, it wasn't taken any further. Now, Randy, being a journalist, he started to do a lot more digging. So he's a gay man himself. The gay community um, was close-knit, but was, it still is very close-knit. And he tracked down former boyfriends of those involved in the cluster study. Now, remember, they would have been contacted by the CDC um, to put together the jigsaw of who may have been infected. He spoke to lots of them and he eventually worked out who patient zero was. It wouldn't have been that difficult to work out who other people in the report were. So their coding system might not have been as, as effective as they hoped. Yeah, not as anonymous if, if, if he was able to track people down and work out identities. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Randy Shields, he wrote a book and it's called And the Band Played On, Politics, People and the AIDS Epidemic because he wanted to evidence the slow response the US government took to the AIDS epidemic. Now, I've read the book. I mean, it's not a light read. But you said you mentioned before that you've watched the film. Yeah, I haven't read the book. I didn't even know it had been made into a film. Yes, yeah. Or it's um, a TV series. It's one of the two. I'll check. But I've, Okay. Yeah. Um, well, the book is the book's very factual. Lots of dates and kind of timelines because it's trying to show you how slow the government were. And it mentions patient zero. And actually, I think what was written about him, it wasn't that factual, to be honest, because he, um, he is mentioned in the book. And it's very evident that Schultz thought he was one of the key players in spreading the virus. So he portrays Dugat as um, charming, very athletic, someone who, by his own admission, had averaged hundreds of partners a year. But he also implies that Dugas was reckless and intentionally infecting other men. The book was published in 1987, and that's really when the patient zero label started to gain traction. So there was a lot of publicity around the book. Obviously, they want to sell it. Um, and the publishers used patient zero as part of the marketing tactic. Um, and that really, as far as I can tell, is how things stayed until 2016. They what over thirty years later. That's bananas. Mm. That's um, so. Did do we know if these things that he that Randy had said about um, Dugard were they true? Was it that he got the information about him having lots of lovers or how he acted his personality? Did that come? Do we know from the the ex partners that he spoke to, or was it just a a bit of a an assumption on Randy's part? Well, there are factors that would lead you to believe that Dugas could be more implemented than he should have been. So in 2016, this is when it all starts to come to light. That is not that long ago. I'm so sorry. To no. It's, it's just like, what? I know. I know he's had to live with this title for over 30 years. But there were two men who um, were working independently of each other but they came to the same conclusion. So one is a biologist called Dr. Michael Warraby. He was conducting a genetic study of blood samples collected from gay men in 1978 and 1979. Um, And he was doing that as part of a Hep B study. And within those samples were samples from Dugas. At the same time, a Cambridge historian called Richard Mackay was studying the theory of patient zero um, and both came to the same conclusion, that Dugas couldn't have been... <coughs> See how excited I'm getting? 
into the apex. I'm going to get there faster. <laughs> so they both came to the same conclusion that Dugas couldn't have been the first person in America infected by HIV and was therefore not a source of infection. Now, Dr. Warabi's findings, they were published in Nature. He felt it was more likely that out of the original cluster study of men, Dugas probably contracted HIV in the middle rather than being the first in the study. So if he wasn't the first, he couldn't have been the source. Richard Mackay's research identified several causes for the patient zero label and dispelled the myth. His findings were picked up by the national press. And that is why he is my second HIV hero, because he cleared Dugas' name. Oh, but we need to talk about it more. Because I had no idea about this. And we're still referencing oh. patient zero, aren't we? And we still probably don't use his name that much, Dugar's name. And it's we still talk about him as patient zero. And I think we need to reclaim Dugar, Sarah. Oh, I think, yes, no, we definitely do. Because you're right. I mean, I still refer to him as patient zero. And it's still quite a, a kind of common term. But it's not him. So that can be our campaign for the year. Let's make sure everybody knows that his name was clear. Yeah, say, say, say the full name again for us. Gaetan Dugas. We're reclaiming Dugas. Yes. I mean, at this point, if I've been mispronouncing his name all the way through, that would be shameful, wouldn't it? Oh, sorry if we are. <laughs> I really hope we're not. Okay, do you want to know how Mackay managed to clear his name? Yes. Okay, right. During his research, Mackay discovered that one of the main reasons that the patient zero label stuck with Dugas was because he was really helpful. So a typo alone in the report um, would have been easy to dismiss, I think. But there are other elements that made the label stick. So each patient on the study had to recall their sexual history so that the CDC could trace their network of partners. Most men in the study averaged 227 partners a year, but could only remember a handful of names. Dugas, he reported having 250 partners and he could remember and he had the details for 72 of those men. So how? How did he know or how could he recall so many? Oh, especially in the days before social media and things. It's not like you're adding people, is it, on Facebook or something? No. Did he have a little black book? Was that, was that, was that a thing then? Excellent thinking, Jessica. Um, yes, they said he kept a diary. Oh, wow. Apparently he was very organised and very methodical. And if you think about his job as an air steward, he would have had to be organised, wouldn't he, to know where he was flying to and you know what shift pattern he was working on. Um, so he kept a diary and he was very willing to share details from the diary he wanted as many people as possible to be contacted, which you think, well, that is a very different character portrayal to the one in Randy Shield's book. Completely. Now, not only that, but lots of men could recall him because he had an unusual name. I know. I didn't even think about that until I started looking into it. So think about when Randy was talking to the gay community Dugas' name probably cropped up more often because it was so memorable. And because it cropped up often, it could also have contributed to the patient zero label with an assumption that he was more promiscuous, perhaps, because more people remembered him. It makes so much sense, doesn't it, when you hear it like that, all those contributing factors. 
I know. Now, there's one more factor that contributes as well. He was the first person in the study to die. And many believed that the first to die must have been the first to contract HIV. Now, nowadays, we know that's not true because people are affected by HIV in different ways, aren't they? You know, how strong your immune system is, the strain of the virus that you have. But back then, they didn't know any of that. So I suppose it's a reasonable assumption that you must have had it for longer if you die earlier than other men in the study. It's such a chain of unfortunate events. And from someone who actually sounds like they were really lovely, not that that would matter being patient zero or whatever, if you're really nice or not, but it's just really unfortunate all the way through. And they've all linked together all these events. And here we are. And this patient zero label has just stuck. I know when you put it all together, you're like, oh, I see. And actually you can see, I think you can see why it would seem plausible to um, medical professionals that he could be patient zero. You know, he's got an, an unusual name, which makes him well remembered by the gay community. He diarised lots of the men that he had slept with, which would have helped to kind of prod people's memories about him. He was the first to pass away. You know, even the medical profession have been using the term patient zero. And, you know, that's, that became his leg- legacy, didn't it, at the end of the day? Now, we said earlier about whether he knew that he had this label. I hope he didn't. I hope he didn't. In the same year as he died. So let's hope he never knew anything about it. But Richard Mackay, I think he sums it up perfectly because he's quoted as saying that Dugas was one of the most demonised patients in history. I think that's probably a fair comment to make. That's, it's just shocking, isn't it? When you hear the history and you hear how the patient zero label came about. And he's right. Dugart has been so vilified and is still, to this day, people still refer to patient zero. Yeah, this is it. Reclaim Dugart. This is what we're doing. <laughs> and for his family as well, that must be so hard. Mm, absolutely, yeah. And his friends and his ex-partners, you think they're all kind of involved, but not able to to speak up to say, no, this is like a character assassination. This isn't the type of person that he was. Right. Shall I tie up some loose ends for you? Yes, please. Where are they now? Because we all like a tidy podcast. It's a bit bitty, isn't it, at the moment? So let's start with Randy Schultz, shall we? Wikipedia, my friend, says that um, whilst he was writing and the band plays on, he had an HIV test himself. He didn't want to know the result because he felt it might interfere with his objectivity as a writer. But when the book published, he then found out that he himself was HIV positive, um, and he passed away in February 1994. Richard Mackay, my hero, um, he's an academic historian and a professional coach, and he went on to write Patient Zero and the Making of the AIDS Epidemic, which was published in 2017 by Chicago Press. I haven't read it, but I'm going to, because I bet that's going to open my eyes even further. I want to borrow that after you, please, because, I mean, I do not have to get my own copy, times of COVID, actually. I'll order my own copy. (laughs) I'm really interested to read more about this now. I think when I read it, it might elevate Richard Mackay from my hero to something far higher. (laughs) I know. 
who else did we mention? Dr. Michael Worraby. Now, he's continued his scientific work and he's involved in investigating the spread of COVID-19. So another um, all round good egg. And then um, having looked at all this, I was intrigued as to how HIV actually reached America. Uh, and I thought, you know, we kind of need to address that, don't we? We can't just leave people hanging and say, well, it wasn't Dugar. Well, then who was it? Yeah, that's true. How, how did this happen then? So I did some more research. I take the historian. That's how I am. So I found a New York Times article that was written by Donald G. McNeil Jr. Uh, and it was published on the 26th of October 2016. The headline of the article was The Man Who Gave Us AIDS. Wow. Yes. So they're still trying to pinpoint it on him. But the point of the article was to evidence that Dugas was not patient zero. So that headline is very misleading. Isn't it? Is it would grab people's attention. In the article, it says genetic analysis analysis showed almost all AIDS cases in the USA were carried from Zaire to Haiti around 1967. We always talk about the AIDS epidemic being in the 80s, but they're talking about 1967. From there, it travelled to New York in 1971. Okay, so a decade earlier than when we're really hearing about it. So the article says that Dugas' 1983 blood sample showed a strain already infecting men in New York before he began visiting. So he didn't start working for Air Canada until 1974, and yet the article says that the virus travelled to New York in 1971. It couldn't have been him. And then I found um, an academic paper written by Dr Jacques Pepin. He's an infectious disease specialist. He wrote it in 2011, and it's called The Origin of AIDS. And it showed that HIV was carried from Kinshasa in the Congo to Haiti in the 60s. That kind of ties up. Um, and it was likely carried through one of the thousands of Haitian civil servants that were recruited by the United Nations to work in the former Belgian Congo after colonial rule collapsed. So whoever brought it back to Haiti, maybe it wasn't just one person, the cases that they had were then multiplied by unsterile conditions at a private blood collecting company that opened in 1971. And they, the company used to export 1,600 gallons of plasma to America every month. Oh, wow. And so that's, was it infected sort of plasma and blood products? I think from what they're saying, donating blood plasma in Haiti was, was quite a, a big thing. And certainly the quantities that they were sending over to America seemed huge to me. And that would explain why um, haemophiliacs were also infected because that's another group that's rarely mentioned actually it's not kind of touched on and it's a sin but they were one of the early groups to be affected by HOE as well and it could very well have been through the plasma that came from Haiti now there's another reason why it would have come from Haiti to America and that's because um, Haiti was like a sex tourism destination for gay men back then um, so, of course, that might have given another route into New York for the virus. But I think through the research that I've done, the bottom line is that no one knows who brought the virus to the States. You can't pin it on one person or even one transmission route, to be perfectly honest. The final thing I want to say, 
actually goes back to what we were saying about the patient zero myth and it's about the damage that has been caused by this because the New York Times article says that the patient zero legacy is still so strong that it influences some vulnerable groups, including gay men and African women, to avoid testing for fear of stigma or being accused of being carriers. Even to this day, people are still worried about the accusations that might be laid at their door about whether they've infected other people. So the myth, it's like you've said, the myth, it's it's still strong, isn't it? It still lives on. Yeah, and we need people to hear that actually patient zero isn't what they think it is. So, oh, well done. Good job. That was amazing. I'm so, I've learned so much. Oh, so did I as I was doing it. And actually, although um, Randy Schiltz, I was kind of like, boo, boo to you for spreading it. I can see why it grabbed his attention so much because it is, I think it's quite a compelling, um, well, it seems trivial to call it a story. This is someone's life we're talking about. But to kind of really look into what happened in America and to um, how they came to the conclusions that they did, I can see how it gripped his attention. And as Of course. A, of course he wants to break the story of how this came to America. And you want to make sense of what's happening in your community, what's, what's, what's making people ill, what's killing people. So I, I know it's, I can from it's it, hindsight's a beautiful thing, isn't it? Mm. We can sit here in 2021 and look back and think, like you were saying, boo, Brandy. But actually, at that time, yeah, you would be fascinated by where this came from. And, and to be fair, he did an awful lot of research. Yes, he did. And his primary kind of motive was his anger at the government and how slowly they were responding to the epidemic. And I can understand, I mean, we've all had um, opinions about COVID, haven't we? And, and how, you know, different governments around the world have responded to it. So I can understand why he would be wanting to kind of bring this out to the public domain and show people that the government haven't acted properly. It's just a shame that when going through all the research, he spots this patient zero, kind of puts two and two together and comes up with something that's completely untrue. Yeah, well, this is good. Let's hope, you know, there are reports out there now, news stories. Now there's this podcast that hopefully will get more people educated and realising that it's not patient zero. Absolutely. And thank goodness for people like Richard Mackay, you know, historians who are interested in the history of HIV and work tirelessly to, to make sure that, you know, the truth is told at the end of the day. Yeah. Well done. Oh, I'm just, my mind's blown a bit. You've got a bit lost for words. It's so much information in a short time. It is a bit, it's a bit too much information. I appreciate that. But yeah, no, fantastic. Down now. An amazing first episode. Great choice, Sarah. Can't wait for episode two. Me too. I will see you soon. Okay. Thank you for listening to HIV Hope and Charity. If you'd like to know more about the work that we do, visit tvps.org.uk. And please like, subscribe and rate the podcast if you enjoyed it.